If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In the summer of 1794, Maximilien Robespierre was one of the most respected, influential and feared figures in revolutionary Paris. Yet over the preceding months, he had made some powerful enemies. And as dawn broke on the 27th of July, these foes were plotting to make their move. In his new book, The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris, the author Colin Jones tells the story of the day in which Robespierre was toppled from power. He told production editor Spencer Mizen about 24 hours that changed the course of French history. Colin, your new book, The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris, tells the story of the thankful of one of the towering figures of the French Revolution. Now, for me, what really makes a book stand out is the fact that it provides an, an hour-by-hour account of the 27th of July 1794, the last full day of Robespierre's life, offering history in what's been described as infinitely small detail. Why did you decide to adopt this approach? To be quite honest, to do something different initially, when I got, I I thought I would do a a study of a day. I've done a lot of books on very long-term things. I thought a day would be really, really interesting. So it's a challenge in some ways. But then when, secondly, when I got going and looked at all the, uh, the writing that's been on the uh, uh, day, it struck me that uh, what one lost in most accounts of the day were the day itself. Sure. You know, so there'd be loads and loads of stuff on, you know, the causes, the preconditions, the, you know, the, this, that, the context, da, 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 da. And then at the end, there'd be like the significance, the aftermath, the terrible importance, etc. And I thought, well, this is crazy because, A, we are losing the sort of dayness of the day. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, you know, the dayness of the day is really, really important because the more I got on, into it, the more I realised that actually the outcome of the day was really to a very considerable extent determined by what actually happened on the day. So, you know, if you look at the beginning of the day, most people probably, if they'd been betting men or women, would have put money, and quite a lot of money actually, on Robespierre coming through the day and being successful. You know, he was a towering figure himself, as you say. He's a major celebrity in Paris. He has enormous support within the uh, sections. 
Uh, he seems to frighten the National Assembly. Uh, he has supporters in key positions in ministries, in the Revolutionary Tribunal. His man, basically, uh, is uh, commander of the, uh, of the uh, National Guard, the Paris National Guard. All bets would be on Robespierre in some way. So it's fascinating to look at this day and see, well, no, something else completely different happens. And by that, one has to look at detail and see the small detail and the sequence of details as the crucial factors in what the book is about, the overthrow of Robespierre. So his fate was in no way inevitable then. It, everything did hinge on this one day. Is, is that what you're arguing? Certainly, um, you know, inevitable is a word which is not in most uh, historians' vocabulary and quite, sure. uh, quite rightly. I, I think actually Robespierre was heading for a fall. I mean, I think he's um, making, um, pushing the revolution in ways which, you know, may well not have um, worked out in his favour. Uh, but certainly there's nothing inevitable about this day. And again, when you look at the uh, the writing that's been on the day, the assumption tends to be, well, he had it coming. It was bound to happen. It was bound to happen in his way. So, yes, it, I am say, saying that. I'm saying that uh, there's nothing inevitable about it. And in fact, it turned out differently from what most people would have expected. Sure. Now, time is a really important theme of your book, isn't it? Um, in, in the introduction, you cite a quote, is it from Boisy de Glas? He, he yeah. says that during the revolution, French men and women had lived six centuries in the, in, in the space of six years. Now, but the importance of time to the revolution is even reflected, isn't it, in, in a new calendar that divided the year not into weeks, but into 10 days at Decadi. Now, um, hence, the day of Robespierre's downfall was, was now known as the Ninth of Thermidor, year two. I mean, what, what was a... What was the rationale between this change from the old calendar to a new calendar? Yes, it's really important. And um, it shows the extent to which uh, the people who, who performed the revolution, the revolutionaries, you know, the French people, if you like, um, were convinced that a new era, a new epoch in human history uh, was, was emerging. And um, once certainly they had got rid of the king on the overthrow of the king in 1792, there's a sense that um, not one should get rid of the what what they start calling actually the former regime, the ancien regime, sometimes sure. called the old regime. The old regime isn't something which you know people. It's not a phrase people used before 1789. After 1790, what came before? And this is after, and this is going to be new, and it's going to be great. You know, and so the sense that. Um, there's also within that an element of uh, hostility towards the church uh, and towards the, you know, it's obviously a religiously uh, inspired uh, uh, calendar. Uh, so the sense is that this should be a new epoch in human history opening up, which uh, starting in France is going to sweep through uh, humanity and a new calendar, a new way of recording time. Uh, is essential. As you say, what is quite interesting, they pick up what's going on in terms of um, metrication, measurement, you know, the, the introduction of the meter and say, well, 10 is the sort of natural number rather than sure. seven. And, you know, they use that. Uh, uh, and that comes in, Well, they, and they start it, although they start in 1793, they say the first day of this new epoch was the day, 21st of September, 1792, with the king overthrown when the republic is declared. And so this new republic is a new e era for humanity human uh, history. Now, you describe uh, Robespierre as one of the revolution's most outstanding and charismatic characters. I wonder if you give us a quick overview of his rise to power and the, 
and the personal qualities that uh, made him such a prominent figure in the revolution. Yes, he, I mean, he's a fascinating figure. And quite honestly, he's one of those figures who uh, I have never quite been able to make my mind up. Am I for, am I against? So this is yeah. one of the interesting things about writing the book to sort of try and get a sort of sense of judgment. What I end up with is a very sort of balanced uh, uh, view, I think, uh, you know, ambivalent view in, so, in yeah. some ways still. Basically, he's someone who ha- who comes out of nowhere. He's a minor lawyer from a minor provincial city, Arras, but he is a, 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 a no real uh, record of public life worth speaking of uh, before the revolution. But he's elected to the Estates General in 1789, becomes the National Assembly. And in there, he, he, he basically develops a um, reputation as the voice of conscience, the champion of the people, and the incor- he's called the incorruptible. He's not going to be sort of swayed by favor or anything like that. Sure. And it's really the quality of his speech, which is uh, the really, really important thing, both in the National Assembly and then in the Jacobin Club, the big political club, which is in uh, Paris. He comes to be a very dominant uh, voice uh, uh, within that. Um, you know, right through his career until he actually enters the Committee of Public Safety, which runs the revolution in 1793, he's never on a committee. He never manages anything. He has no management or uh, knowledge or expertise. He's always a voice, essentially. He actually suggests that when they move after the, the new constitution of 1791 is introduced, that none of those deputies should go into the next assembly. So he continues actually as a voice of tries journalism, continues in the Jacobin Club. But when the the, um, overthrow of the king comes up, he starts becoming politically involved. He basically um, re-manipulates, re-manages his support group in many ways. He's always spoken, you know, out to the public. Uh, But now he develops strong links with the Paris popular movement, the sans-culotte. And actually, uh, the, the sort of alliance between them is one reason why the king is overthrown. And then the revolution moves increasingly radically uh, in the 1792-93. In the National Convention, the new assembly, which comes in, which establishes the republic in the late 1792, he is, again, that voice. And he's the voice of radicalism as well. He accepts in 1793 the only way to win the war, and the war is going really, really badly, a civil war, There's every frontier is being penetrated, the only way to win the war is actually to rally the people, as he says. So you need socially radical uh, reforms to, to, to win them over. Maximum of prices and uh, uh, the final end of the feudal system, et cetera, et cetera. So he stays, sticks for those uh, things and he becomes the voice of the revolution. He justifies in some ways the terror, the use of terror within the revolution to frighten the enemies uh, of, the, of the revolutionary uh, government. Um, so the, the, his role, I would say, is really, really as a voice, a voice and a, and a sort of shiny example of political commitment, political engagement and incorruptibility. Now, it seems that, uh, that his success was uh, at least partly based on his ability to, on the one hand, direct the terror with its attendant intimidation, arrests and bloodletting, while also keeping the wider country on side by pushing through a raft of social reforms. Um, You describe it as a formidable fist encased in a velvet glove. I mean, I I wonder if you could elaborate on that a a bit. Is that one of the, 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 the keys to his success? Uh, well, that's very interesting you say that because I, 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 that is something I was trying to do that's quite important in the book. And I did it secretly. I only say this right at the end of the book, but I go yeah. through the entire book, which, as you've seen, probably is quite a long book, without mentioning the term which most people use to describe this period, which is the terror. 
And that, although people talk about government through terror, if you like a small t, the idea of the terror as a concept, a defining concept of this regime or this era is something that only comes in after Robespierre is overthrown in some ways. Right. So what I wanted to do was not to say this is Robespierre and the terror. I was saying this is Robespierre and the system of revolutionary government with the committees like war cabinets essentially running the war, running, running the, uh, the sort of uh, uh, the uh, policies within uh, France as well. And in that, there's certainly a very punitive element, you know, definitely. And we would not like, it's not cuddly in any ways. It's uh, not, um, you know, it's pretty hideous in, in, in many ways. Uh, but on the other hand, there is a genuine commitment to social social reform and to egalitarianism. And, and I think Robespierre does uh, stick up for that. By the end, he's sticking up for terror with a little t in a way that people think, you know, he's he's actually using it in a personal way for his personal aggrandizement. Uh, and so things are, are going differently there. But I think, you know, this sort of the two-faced side of revolutionary government, terror, social reform, is something which is often looked, uh, missed rather, when people look at this period. And it's something I really wanted to emphasize uh, very much. Do you think in some ways he's been made a scapegoat for uh, some of the bloodletting that went on in those years? A huge, uh, I mean, he is uh, right from the word go, right from the day after he's overthrown. I look at this very briefly at the end of my book and sort of uh, uh, give some of the indications there. But but generally what happens is that, you know, people, are, it's a bit like the fall of Hitler, you know, so Hitler did everything. You know, he, he was the man. We were all frightened of him. We were terrified. We had to follow orders. If not, we'd have been next to the, on the, on the block. And that's basically what his colleagues start saying uh, after, uh, after the night of Thermidor. So he becomes the chap who sort of all, all the ills of the, um, uh, of the terror, uh, uh, of terror are loaded on him. In fact, he is one of 12 members of the, uh, of the Committee of uh, Public Safety. He's there for the year, exactly a year actually, from 27th of July, 1994. And it is a, a collective responsibility, collective government in some ways, which is run. Interestingly, uh, it's one of the, they all sit around this green table in the Tuileries Palace. And it's, um, it's one of those ones where, you know, what goes on around the green table stays around the green table. There's very, very little taking out of the disputes within it out into the wider public sphere. And one of the things which by the end, in the last six or eight weeks of uh, his, uh, his life, uh, becomes uh, very worrying for his opponents is that first he doesn't show up to the Committee of Public Safety or the committee uh, or the uh, convention, but he keeps going to the Jacobin Club and keeps criticizing the government, keeps criticizing the uh, members around it and doing it in a way which, although veiled, one gets a sense of you know who he's who he has in mind. So so yeah, I think the the revolutionary government is a collective effort which is supported by the convention and which is run by these uh, twelve men. And in many ways, Robespierre is not a doer. Still, you know, he's still a, a speaker rather than a doer. Uh, oh. He. Um, he, he, you know, some of them have responsibilities. So there's a guy called Carnot who basically runs the war. There's a guy called Robert Landé who runs the economy, essentially. Uh, they have a sort of distribution of roles. He really is the ideologist. He's the, he's the man who goes and, you know, does the big speeches, gets people on side, justifies the use of violence and, uh, and terror, and pushes the uh, revolution towards a sort of social, uh, social program as well. So, so, where does things stand as dawn broke on the 27th of July, 1794? Did Robespierre have any inkling of the storm that was about to break over him? 
I think, you know, this is what, you know, historians always say. They say, you know, he was, he, he, he actually, what happens after being absenting himself from the uh, Committee of Public Safety and the convention for six weeks, roughly, um, he goes into the convention on the 8th of Thermidor, that's the 26th of July, day before, and he gives this very long two-hour speech, which, although it doesn't name names, it seems very violent. It's very sort of uh, uh, on the line, you know, sort of, uh, he's, they're enemies of the Republic, they have to be got rid of. And also, he says, you know, if this doesn't happen, I'm going to die, you know. And people have looked and they said, well, you know, he's, it's, it's like a suicide. It's the longest suicide note in the French Revolution, you know, this two-hour speech. In fact, when you look at his speeches, this is a trope. This is a this is uh, Robespierre's signature trope, you know, I could die for the Republic. He's been saying it for years and years and years. I don't think he means it so seriously as most historians think. I, don't, I think he's still sincere. He realises there's a risk, but he doesn't think that absolutely his, his life is on the line next, in, uh, the, the next day in the way that most, most people think. And, what, you know, there are a number of reasons for me uh, thinking this. And one is that, you know, the day is over... Uh, he goes into the Jacobin Club in the evening, repeats the speech and gets a lot of, you know, vocal support. And so I think, by, you know, I start at midnight on that day. He's come back. We know it is about midnight from various records. Yeah, and he speaks to his uh, landlord, a, a guy who's also a Jacobin. And Jacobin's, and, you know, his landlord's very worried about him. He's seen, you know, what's been going on in the convention where people have been very hostile. Uh, and Robespierre says, don't worry, it's, you know, the threats are coming from my former colleagues, but, you know, the convention is going to stick, stick by me. He repeats that the next day. And moreover, he goes to sleep. He goes to bed and he gets up next morning. He has breakfast as normal. He has a cup of coffee. We know that. And he strolls over uh, to the National Convention with his brother, who's also a, a deputy, and they're all ready to go. So I think Robespierre has had crisis. He's had his back against the wall before. He thinks the day of Ninth of Thermidor will be a day when he's got his back against the wall. But my sense is he's still a player. He hasn't given up. He doesn't think it's all over. Uh, and actually, one of the another, another things which I think I interpret as being a very um, uh, much, you know, a sense that uh, he doesn't think his life is on, on the line. First, he organizes nothing. He's got a whole load of supporters, including the commander of the National Guard on side, he doesn't talk to any of them. You know, they are as amazed as he is by what goes on. And in fact, when you look at his actions, that's again, when you look in real detail, what it, how he reacts over the day and then look at his supporters, everyone is amazed. They're sort of like, what is going on? You know, yeah. they're really taken off, off guard. So it's one of those days which happens just like that. So what happened on this day? Can you... Can you Give us a, a brief summary of the of the events of the 27th of July, 1794. Sure, sure. I, I mean, I don't like a sort of, um, you know, three or four act uh, dra tragedy in some ways, because yeah. you see it's a sort of person with great uh, uh, abilities brought low uh, by, by the day. Basically, I start at midnight because um, you can set the scene to a certain extent, but also there is a, a sort of differential plotting that's going on. On the Robespierre side, nothing is happening. They're sleeping. But um, some of the people who think they've been fingered by Robespierre for uh, uh, possible liquidation the next day start talking to each other, start thinking about what, what, what to do. And in particular, there's one man who actually, you know, would be certainly near the top of Robespierre's list if there were a set of liquidations, a man called Talien, goes round and he starts talking to the moderate deputies and he says, this man, he's gone mad. He's gone off the edge. You know, he's, he's lost the plot. 
we're all at danger now. We all have to uh, uh, stick together. And so what happens on the next day, whether they're in the assembly, people say, what the heck is going to go on? You know, uh, and suddenly, just as um, uh, Robespierre's ally, Saint-Just, stands up to speak, this guy, Talian, walks in shouting, this has got to stop. And everyone turns their head and says, what, what is going on? Point of order. He gets the uh, stage and he launches into an incredible attack uh, against uh, uh, Robespierre and Saint-Just and his, his, his allies. And what initially people, are, well, one of the deputies say, it's like an electric shock runs around the room. No one knows what's going on. But suddenly they get the hang of what's going on and they start cheering Talian and booing Robespierre. And what they also realise is to keep Robespierre silent, you have to keep him silent. You've got to stop him speaking. And there's a sort of, basically, it's, it, and again, I don't think this is planned really at all, as far as I can see. But they realise that, you know, Robespierre's voice is absolutely only You shut him up, you shut Robespierre down completely. And so they have these long speeches. They're very, very loath still to do, you know, do away with Robespierre. They, they're just very worried about the popular support he has. But by the end of the uh, afternoon, by mid-afternoon, they're saying You're, these people, are, he and his allies are under, under uh, arrest. And they think it's all over. Uh, they literally, they go out, the convention go out to lunch, a very late lunch, about 4 p.m., uh, which is quite normal then, but uh, 4 p.m., uh, thinking, job done. You know, we've got rid of Robespierre, we can, you know, move on now. But what is happening uh, uh, within Paris is a counter-mobilisation. And his supporters, particularly the mayor, the uh, a guy who's the national agent, who's like second in command, or chief executive officer at the town hall, uh, city hall, really, and the, and the commander of the National Guard, Guard a man called Henriot, realised they had to try and mobilise people to put pressure on the convention, to expel Robespierre's enemies and to get Robespierre out of jail. And so what you get in the afternoon is a sort of massive mobilisation, uh, attempted mobilisation of the people of Paris through the National Guard, uh, you know, which most people members are, most adult males, over 100,000 people are members of the National Guard, to mobilise these people, put them on the street, take them to the convention, drive out of the convention, the deputies they don't like, as they have done on other occasions. What then becomes really significant is, you know, the convention meets again in the evening, has no idea. And then they get news coming in, you know, Paris is mobilizing, the Jacobin Club are in, in uh, rebellion, the Commune is organizing the whole of Paris, the National Guard, there's cannon and everything like that. And in fact, just before nine o'clock, one of the commune people leads a delegation of well over a thousand people to the convention, which is in the Tuileries Palace, just by the Louvre, where the Louvre is yeah. uh, now, with cannon. And they actually are there to release uh, Robespierre. Robespierre is actually uh, going to prison at that time, but they release uh, Henriot. At that moment, at that moment, um, if they had moved into the convention, we know the convention is defenceless. It's one of those great might have beens. They would have walked in there and completely crushed uh, uh, Robespierre's uh, uh, opponents. But they go back to the Hotel de Ville to organize. Henriot takes them back there. And this gives um, the convention a breathing space. And they realize they've got to act. They can't count on the National Guard, seemingly. So what they do, and this is a really big point about the day, which most historians have missed, actually, it is that they appoint one of their own to be in charge of all armed forces within Paris. Uh, it's a man called Barras. And he and uh, he's given 12 adjuncts, other deputies. These guys do the job. They get on a horse, they're in their sort of tricolor, you know, the plumed yeah. hat, tricolor sashes. 
They go around the streets, 9, 10, 11, midnight at night, saying, don't, don't go to the commune, stick by the convention. You know, they get the narrative out there. So that, for me, is really important. Robespierre, actually, you know, to make the dangers even more for them, uh, uh, he has actually not been received in prison. He's allowed to, you know, don't want people to think it's too dangerous to take him in. And he ends up in the uh, city hall, in the Hotel de Ville there. And at midnight, which I sort of end the narrative there, although I take it obviously a bit further as well, he's there again, you know, just as on the 12th of, uh, at 12 midnight the previous day, he's been thinking, my back's against the wall, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I think it'll be all right. Midnight, he's thinking, wow, that didn't go well, because he's <laughs> realizing that all the forces outside, you know, which were there on the Place de l'Hôtel de Ville outside, they're all going home, you know, they're going back to the sections and they're hearing news, the convention's getting a big force together, and indeed, it's marching on the uh, commune. And uh, 2 a.m., they uh, turn up, um, they, you know, in big force outside the uh, Hôtel de Ville. There's nothing there. All those troops, all those supporters of the commune and Robespierre have gone home. They go straight up into the room in which Robespierre is. What happens next is actually still a subject of much debate. Um, some people say that Robespierre tried to commit suicide, succeeded only in blowing a hole through part of his jaw. There is someone on the day who claims that they shot him. You know, we're still, the jury's still out on, on that. But essentially, he's under arrest. Uh, he will, you don't even have, he's outlawed, essentially. You don't even yeah. have a, to have a trial. Uh, he will be identified. And later that evening, the 10th of the 28th of July, he'll be taken out, taken out to what is now Place de la Concorde. And he is, and uh, about 20 of his allies will be executed. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. He's like a black hole. You know, you sort of get to the edge of him and suddenly you're sucked in there and you're sort of seeing everything in his eyes or seeing in terms of what he did and what he thought and what he was up to and things like that. And so in all this work, I left Robespierre to last. I thought, I'm going to get that picture of Paris, I'm going to picture the opponents, and then I'm going to go into uh, Robespierre and, and see what's, uh, what's going on. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Do you get a sense of uh, how his mood changed during the day? Was there a rising sense of panic as he... Is he sort of grasped the enormity of what was happening? Yeah, I mean, we've got, you know, obviously we have an, an enormous number of uh, papers on this, but we have nothing from Robespierre. He never no. speaks. The best we get are sort of, um, you know, sort of expostulations or, or sort of threats or, you know, sort of chance remarks. He's calling the, his opponents in the convention assassins and things like that, you know, but we, he never speaks. We know when he goes to the commune, he speaks. We, no one's got a, a, a record. I think what people seem to witness in the convention is his complete discombobulation. You know, right. he was completely taken aback by what happens. Also, what is quite surprising, and I think people don't realize at the time, and actually, again, it makes us uh, uh, think again about his popularity, is he's always counted on the public galleries. Public galleries are silent. They, they don't support him. They actually support the uh, uh, convention. So I think he's like in a really bad state. And then he's arrested and he's taken down and put, placed under arrest. And then they put him in a carriage, carriage and they take him to a prison. And a, thousand, you know, a couple of thousand people are shouting at him behind him. He gets to the prison. The warders, you know, basically worried out of his mind and says, uh, no, you're not coming in here. So he's taken away and he's put it uh, at first in the police headquarters of the uh, uh, commune. We have descriptions of him there. People say they have, he has no idea what's going on. He really is discombobulated. Sure. At one stage also they say, oh, we've got someone, one of the National Guardsmen from the Cité, which the, uh, the local section, is going to support you. And he's, this is a man we know, is a, you know, a true uh, sans-culotte radical. And he comes in and says, this is Robespierre, you know, you're going to guard him. And he says, well, I think you've got the wrong man for the job. I'm here to support institutions, not men. And this man has been accused of things, so maybe we should have the trial first before I defend him. So he goes wide. He says, you know, Robespierre, again, one of the few things we know, he said, he said, this is, why have you given me this counter-revolutionary aristocrat? He's not a, a, a counter-revolutionary, he's not an aristocrat. He has completely <laughs> lost it. And indeed, when he goes to the convention, he, he says something, but he soon disappears into a sort of committee room and he just seems to be completely out of it. So that's really evident from reading your book is uh, the impacts of the people of Paris, ordinary Parisians, on the course of events on, on this day. Uh, they seem to be like really important actors in the drama. I mean, how important to you in writing your book was, was, was it for their voices to really come through? Yeah, no, that was really the one the part of the challenge that I really, really enjoyed and um, tried to work extremely hard on. Because the more I went on to it, you know, the, initially you see it as sort of a downward trajectory. Someone's up there by the end of the, the day, they're right at the bottom there. But what occurred to me looking at it more closely, what came out increasingly clearly was that there was another rather ascendant arc, if you like, which was that of the people of Paris. And what I tried to give the sense of is, you know, this is a day they all wake up to thinking it's just going to be a normal day. You know, the convention's going to meet, OK, but we get on with life. You know, there's a bit of uncertainty and discontent about the uh, policy as we got national 
policy about wages, but you know, there's nothing much uh, going to go on. And then in the afternoon, you get this news coming out, but also very confusing news as well. You know, news coming out from the convention, newspapers, and then from the commune, and then people have seen things, you know. And what people then are doing over the, over the hours, late, late, late afternoon, early evening, try to work out what the heck is going on and try to make a decision which is in the interests of them and in the interests of the way in which they see the revolution. And what becomes very, very evident, and again, if you look at histories of the revolution, it is not something that comes out very clearly at all. It is that basically they support the National Convention because for them, the National Convention will deliver the revolution. They support the institutions. This is a national assembly, after all, which supports the nation, which is actually elected by universal male suffrage, has tremendous, uh, uh, um, you know, um, uh, prestige has been winning battles. You know the 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 the, the, the army is going better. The, the it's going things are going better at the front, as opposed to you know just sticking up for this guy. And no one really knows what he wants. You know he hasn't made that very clear. So I, as I say, essentially this is a, a you know a sort of political awakening in some ways, or not awakening from nothing because they people are very committed to the uh, revolution, but a sort of commitment. Uh, to the revolution, taking a particular way, a support for the convention, a support for revolutionary institutions, as opposed to uh, support for an individuals. In some ways, it's a defeat for celebrity. You know, it's a, so he's a sort of political uh, leader, nothing like our, our populist leaders, of course, of the 21st century. Yeah. But you can see some sorts of uh, examples where, where you know, so much about what they represent politically lies in their personal uh, qualities or lack of qualities uh, uh, or whatever. But they, the people of Paris basically win the, win the revolution for the convention. This, the symbol I give of that ultimately is that they have to do a new, a new password, you know, to, for troops moving around the city in the day. And the password they come up with is one side says convention and the other says people. You know, that is the, that is the sort of alliance, the national convention, the people of Paris that win the day. And it's not true of the French Revolution generally. Is it, it, was it an event that was um, shaped massively by the people more, more, to a greater extent than uh, yeah. big epochal events that have happened in the past. Yes, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. I mean, from the storming of the Bastille onwards, the people of Paris, you know, overthrow the king, which is done by the people of Paris, many other sort of acts, the sort of engagement, political engagement, which is really novel and striking about uh, uh, their, their revolution is absolutely there. Well, of course, it's the, it's the next chapter in the revolutionary story. I, I mean, I, I think... The Ninth of Thermidor is a really important pivotal date. And, you know, then there's this sort of movement away from terror thereafter. And in some ways, the, it's the people of Paris who will be the, the victims or the, um, should we say, the recipients of the next stage of tragedy, because they basically, once Robespierre is gone, there's a move to undercut uh, their institutions, undercut their con uh, contribution uh, to the revolution. The city hall is closed down, depoliticization uh, throughout the cities and a, a sort of a revenge attacks on anyone who's been involved in the revolution in uh, 1793 and 94. So they, they will lose out. In some ways, it's, you know, the tragedy is that they, you know, they, they won the revolution for the, uh, the, the revolutionary day for the convention the convention really, really lets them down thereafter and basically disengages uh, from them, uh, even though, you know, it's the people of Paris uh, who have uh, pulled the chestnuts out of the fire uh, sure. for the convention when they were really facing up against it uh, uh, during the course of the day. 
See, that, that takes us on to my next question quite nicely. So I, I just wanted, wanted to ask you how important a, a day is 27th of July, 1794, in the course of, of, of the French Revolution. To what extent did the death of, of Robespierre shape the trajectory of the revolution? I think it, it will, you know, ever, ever since <laughs> histories of the revolution have been written, and it, it, especially from the early 19th century, it's always been about days. It's been the 14th of July. It's the um, yeah. storm in the Bastille starts it going, um, overthrow the king, 10th of August, 1792. But that day, 1794, it's not going to go away. We will still see that as a key pivotal point because it is removing personal uh, power from Robespierre and the sort of social radicalism which he uh, sticks up for. Uh, but also uh, it is undermining the, uh, the, the contribution of the people of Paris to, towards the, uh, uh, towards the uh, revolution and radicalism. And in fact, what one finds thereafter is a move towards moderation uh, uh, in social policies and also in politics, an attempt to find a sort of political middle ground, uh, which basically will last until Napoleon moves in in 1799. So it's a day, I think, you know, which is, it's not going to go away in terms of any, uh, any sort of account of the revolution. Now, you write that the outcome of the day depended on a, a million micro decisions made by Parisians over the 24 hours. Like, your book endeavours to uncover and evaluate many of these decisions. Like, that must have been an enormous challenge as a historian. I mean, how, how did you go about researching all this? Yeah, well, you, you know, there are some histories of the day. We have the account of what was going on the National Assembly. But I realised quite early on that I could actually uh, get at the popular voice. Um, partly there are, you know, there's a big official inquiry into it, uh, what happened, and trying to find Robespierre's supporters, essentially. And a lot of legwork is done by the members of the convention on that committee, and they write an official report with a lot of those details uh, uh, in. But moreover, Barras, the guy who actually uh, was in charge of the uh, National Guard at the end and you know, basically won the day, um, about four or five days after, he writes to every one of the 48 sections of which you know, the Ministry of Neighbourhoods and says, I want an exact account of what went on in your section on the 8th, 9th and 10th of, uh, of uh, uh, Thermidor. Um, and, you know, I want that fast. And he writes that to three major individuals within each section. One is uh, the chair of what's called the Civil Committee. The other is the chair of the uh, Revolutionary Committee. The other is the leader of the commander of the sectional uh, battalion of the National Guard. Nearly all of those reports come in. And some, some sections actually send more. So straight away, we've got 150 extremely detailed uh, reports. And, you know, at least they're in, you know, one or two boxes in the convention. But I did want to go further than that. And what I, I, I realised was that I could locate quite easily with a bit of, you know, sort of thought and a bit of pushing paper around and things like that. I could locate quite easily in the very, very extensive police archives that there are in, in Paris, the National Police Archives, the police dossiers of many people who were... Uh, involved in the day, either positively or negatively. So I just did a massive, massive trawl of these individuals. Uh, I was lucky to have a Leverhulme uh, grant, uh, which allowed me to do some pretty hefty legwork in the in the French National Archives. And so I've got hundreds and hundreds uh, of uh, uh, of people uh, people's accounts of at least a fraction of the day. Some of them, you know talk about you know what was going on the whole day, but mainly it's in those key sections of the 
uh, of the day. So it's basically a, a jigsaw puzzle I was putting together. Yeah. But, but also the challenge in some ways was it's a moving jigsaw puzzle because, you know, time is also of the essence. So we're looking at t- tiny little space, micro place, but also micro time as well. You know, and, and at some of these accounts, they say, you know, at quarter past eight, X happened, at half past eight, X happened. You know, they are quite uh, detailed. People are carrying watches in the way, in the... Uh, uh, at the end of the 18th century in the way they weren't in, you know, the English Revolution, for example, yes, you know. Sure. So people are aware of time, I think, much, much more. And that, that this allows me really to do that sort of very, very tight, you know, very tightly focused sort of work in which you can pick up voices, pick up people, pick up perspectives all across the map and right across through the, through the clock as well as uh, 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 on the map, if you like. And finally, Colin, you, you mentioned earlier you, you, you're quite ambivalent about uh, Robespierre and his, his his character and his his legacy. I mean, if, if there was one or two things you particularly learned about him during your research for this book, what, what would they be? Um, well, this is partly, uh, there's a lot of this is about me, but um, essentially I, I'm looking at the way in which Robespierre's name operates in um, the, the way in which people write about history He's like a black hole, you know, you sort of get to the edge of him and suddenly you're sucked in there and you're sort of seeing everything in his eyes or seeing in terms of what he did and what he thought and what he was up to and things like that. And so in all this work, I left Robespierre to last. I thought I'm going to get that picture of Paris, I'm going to get a picture of the opponents and then I'm going to go into uh, Robespierre uh, 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 and, and see what's, uh, what's going on. And I, I think what really comes out of it, because obviously, you know, I'm looking at the day, but I'm looking at a lot of stuff that happened before, is that this is a person, you know, who represents values, which we all, you know, in the early part of the revolution, he's sticking up for things, all, all of which we'd accept now, you know, it's good liberal opinion, you know, it's even against the death penalty, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, you know, free, yeah, all those things he's supporting for. And it's a great voice of uh, rectitude in many ways. You know, he still has the same very sort of dominant personality. But, you know, the values he stands up for are really, really important. People's cha- champion, popular sovereignty and all the rest of it. By the end of it, you know, even those people who are great fans of Robespierre as many, I, I think, you know, you can't get away from it. Things have gone very bad. He has basically massively miscalculated. Uh, and, you know, I don't think you should look away, you know, and say, you know, he was trying to do the work, do the good stuff and maybe he wasn't as involved in the terror. Certainly there's his exaggeration about his role in the terror, yeah. but he was in there and he was uh, encouraging violence and he was actually accepting and working with uh, uh, the sort of popularity and the celebrity which he, he gained in ways which, I, you know, really we wouldn't want to uh, approve of. And so I think Robespierre, you know, so, so it's the ambivalence of Robespierre, really, that comes out for me. You know, you, the Robespierre, the good, Robespierre, the bad, you know, rather than a lot of historians take one or the other, you know, he's, he's very good and the rest is not so, should be overlooked. Others, he's the tyrant who dominates, you know, that is wrong. They're both wrong, I think, you know, that yeah. is, this is a very nuanced, very uh, sort of ambivalent uh, character, as of course we all are. That was Colin Jones. The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris, is out now published by Oxford University Press. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back on Friday with a special episode featuring eyewitnesses to the Berlin Wall. A 
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.